Hello, everybody, and welcome in to the first off-season edition of the baseball off-season edition of Upon Further Review. This is Evan Grant of the Dallas Morning News, and I'm joined by these two clowns. Kevin Sherrington, clown number one. I'm glad to see, even in the postseason or in the off-season, your air guitar and your uh, drum playing is still up to snuff. I'm Barry Horn. It's right on par with your cookie eating in the middle of the intro. It was so unprofessional. And we have a special guest again, guys. Once again, I've booked a special guest. You're unbelievable. Uh, who is the special guest? Thad Levine, are you there? I, I am. I'm just going to sit back and listen to the uh, witty banter between the three of you guys. Yeah, it's witty. really good stuff, isn't it? Witty. I, I, on the 20 to 80 scale, where would you rate that banter? As a 12. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's wow. accurate. I, I think that's pretty good scouting right there. Thad, welcome in to uh, talking about the Rangers offseason and, and what we can expect to watch from this club in the offseason. Um, I, I think before we get there, just wanted to get your take on kind of how the, the division series ended up playing out with with the last three games. I think any time you lose the last game of the season, you are disappointed, but I would say in retrospect, it's tough to look at 2015 as anything but a tremendous success for the Texas Rangers. It was one of the most enjoyable seasons I've had working here where we came from in 2014 and then even in April in 2015. I just think you look back at the season and there are just so many positives, so many building blocks for the future. And certainly the ALDS didn't end exactly the way we had hoped, but the reality is it was just so many positives from the season. And I think it puts us heading into the offseason very optimistic. And I think one key thing that you did during the season that everybody looks at the Hamels, Diekman, and Dyson acquisitions as big trading deadline acquisitions, but the way you guys have described it and the way it really plays out is it was doing your off a, a, a significant amount of your off-season shopping in the middle of July. Uh, so where does this team have to go this winter in, 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 to figure out uh, completing the roster? I, I think your point is exactly right. When we entered the, the trade deadline season in 2015, we were really looking at only making moves that we felt could impact our team 2016 and beyond. We also had an eye towards the 2015 season just because we didn't view the American League West as a division that was going to get away from us. And we knew we were going to get healthier and that if we added some of those arms in addition to the guys coming off the disabled list, that we had a chance to really remake our, our pitching staff as a whole and we thought we could make a late surge. So we did get a lot of our, our shopping done at the deadline, but I think we still go into the offseason uh, with Gallardo and, and Lewis, two starting pitchers who gave us close to 400 innings combined. Uh, that leaves us with a big hole. You know, We're going to try to be a little bit aggressive on the starting pitching front. I think if 2014 taught us nothing else, it's that you can't be uh, too deep in starting pitching. So we'll be looking to advantageously – add starting pitching, whether it's through the free agent trade markets or, quite frankly, just giving guys within opportunities to, to matriculate to the big leagues. The other thing that I think we saw throughout the course of the second half was just that our team is, is pretty left-handed, and we were, we were exposed at times by left-handed pitching. The acquisition of Mike Napoli really helped us out immeasurably, and also some of our younger hitters starting to hit left-handed pitching as the second half progressed. But I think that's something that we're aware of going into this offseason is something that we're going to probably need to balance out the lineup a little bit more with a, a right-handed presence, ideally somebody who could hit 
somewhere, you know, two through six in the order and, and balance out our otherwise very left-handed lineup. So you, you obviously spelled that out very well, uh, what the, you feel like y'all need to do. I, I would like to, to, to think or to ask you, if, if the return of you, Darvish, uh, if, you, if you retain a Kobe Lewis or, or Giovanni Gallardo, uh, if you uh, re-sign Mike Napoli, would you be happy with, with those types of measures of, of uh, fixing the holes that, are, that would uh, conceivably be in the, in the roster? You know, I, I, absolutely, Kevin. I think we look at it as uh, we don't have a, a lot of pending free agents, but we have a lot of pending free agents who we'd love to retain. I think this is one of those proverbial off-seasons where if we could go to post and spring training with a very similar 25-man roster, add back in you, Darvish, and the the progress of what we hope are our prospect pool that are in AA and AAA, we would like our chances heading into 2016 and beyond. So our priority will be our existing free agents to start with, and then depending on how those negotiations go, I think I think we'll look outside to the trade markets as well as to the free agent markets, but one thing that we've tried to steer clear of as best we can is singular dependence on the free agent markets. And, you know, we, we recognize it's going to be a very robust class this year, especially in starting pitching, uh, but that a lot of those deals are probably going to go north of our comfort zone at some point. So we, we're going to try to stay within as best we can with our, our younger prospects and then probably look first to trade and second to the free agent markets. Zach, can you give us the name of a, a prospect who, who might, Come along and help out next year, but not the obvious one. Is is there somebody? Is there a dark? Is there a dark horse uh, that you're looking for? Well, you know, I, I think one thing that we've been reluctant to do in years past is just name prospects. We did that the first year we were here when we had the the DVD trio of Diamond, Volquez, and Danks. And you know, as the nature of prospects are today's top prospects, some somebody will come out of nowhere and emerge on that list, and somebody who's high on that list will will falter a little bit. But you know, one guy who certainly uh, put his name squarely on the top of our list and probably who was not at the beginning of 2015 was Lewis Brinson. And he did a tremendous job as a exceptional athlete in center field. He's, he's a guy who can cover a ton of ground. And he also had a, just a, a really breakout offensive season, uh, splitting time throughout the, the upper levels of our minor leagues. So not that he's a dark horse, but he's just a guy who probably really squarely put himself on our radar screen uh, and the the industry's radar screen, and he wasn't necessarily there in the beginning of 2015. Dad, on on the right-handed bat situation, it would appear that there are one of three spots, or or, or, or maybe even four, if you want to include DH, where the guy would fit best, and that's a corner outfield spot, first base or DH, or maybe a catcher. Uh, is that kind of how you look at it, or or is there somewhere that people are overlooking in terms of where you could wedge a legitimate right-handed bat into this lineup? I, I think those are the right spots. Uh, you know, I, I I think we're we're very open from an outfield perspective to add one guy there, and then you know the the, the other spots catching. There's just there's a lack of true options out there, although I think Pudge would argue he could still give us a year or two. <laughs> yeah, probably could. Uh, but, but uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, we, we can get creative in the outfield, and Delano DeShields did a great job in center field for us. We also are open to having Leonis come back and be locked down center fielder and having uh, Delano potentially move move to a corner and give us plus defense in the outfield. Now, that's not necessarily the right-handed bat of which we were speaking in fact, it's adding another left-handed bat, but I think it's probably most likely going to occur through through a creative trade 
that could open a spot on our existing team and, and that we could then ultimately fill with a right-handed bat. Considering uh, the you know game five and the seventh inning and the and the way that uh, kind of unfurled um, and the fact that I believe that y'all finished second in the league in errors, uh, is there a way to address that um, internally? Is there do you have to to make a move from the outside to uh, to clean that up or, or what do you do about that? I, I think I think in large regard we we look a little bit past just errors specifically, and I only say that because. If you look at the number of balls our guys got to, they got to a lot more balls than than the average team did. So they were, yes, making some physical errors on some of those balls, but some of those were functions of the fact that they actually had above-average range and then didn't make the play once they got to the ball. So we're looking a little bit past just the errors, but it is something we want to address. And I think that's something that starts with focus. I think we feel as if we have personnel that should be above average defensively, guys who have been above average defensively, some some even elite performers who actually tallied a lot of errors this season. So I think it all starts with focus. I do think these guys got significantly better as the season progressed, which was a very positive sign. But I'm quite certain that Jeff Bannister, who comes from a very defensive background, is going to make that a significant focus going into spring training. But one thing I would just say is last year's acquisition of Delano DeShields and the and the Rule 5 was, you know, wasn't a mistake on our part. Our, our, our vision there was if the game is going to start seeing a little bit of an ebb of the, of the uber power that we wanted to be able to shift to a speed and defense type format if we needed to, to, to add that level of dynamic to our offense. We'll continue to shop on those markets this offseason and value defense and speed very highly. You know, when you talk about guys who improved over the course of the season um, and we talk about the fielding aspect the first thing that comes to my mind is Elvis he had a he had a poor first half of the season on both on both the offense and defensive fronts I think we saw a different type player in the second half and then unfortunately he had the game the game five situation uh, where he was kind of put in the spotlight where do you feel like Elvis is going into this offseason you know, I think Elvis, uh, it almost feels like each of the last two or three off-seasons, he's been at a crossroads in his career where he has a chance to take that demonstrative step towards being a true elite championship caliber player, which is what we view him as. I, and I think that's what we, as fans of the Texas Rangers, saw in the second half of the season. This guy was a difference maker. He was a difference maker on the base pass, uh, at, at, in the box, and, and also on the field. So we know it's there. We just need to see it with greater consistency, and we need it to see it for 162 of the regular season and then for the entirety of the postseason. And I would say that you know what, what transpired in Game 5 certainly was unfortunate, but I look at that as it may be something that Elvis looks back in his career as a watershed moment for him. I think that's going to be the moment that he'll look back and it will have transformed him uh, because I'm quite certain he's never going to want to be in that position again, and he's going to do whatever it takes this offseason to prepare so that he will be an elite performer in the field next season. You know, one of the things I get from readers uh, all the time about Elvis is that, you know, when you're in there in the clubhouse and certainly someone is part of the organization and you're around him a lot, uh, you know, he's a great kid, uh, you know, great personality, a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm, and those are all good things. That's the things you want to have in a clubhouse especially. Uh, But, 
what you know, what I hear from fans is they they feel like oh he's he doesn't take the game seriously enough you know he's he's always concerned with his dumping uh, Gatorade on people after games and right. and and and, and uh, yucking it up with with Adrian Beltre at third base and on the pop flies and that kind of thing and when you make errors on top of all that uh, it doesn't go over well. I, I think that's a fair assessment. I, I would just say you know for for those of us who've had opportunities to go down to Venezuela, Puerto Rico, Dominican, Mexico to to watch winter ball. I mean, these guys play the game with such a level of energy and exuberance. And I think, you know, for those of us who grew up in the United States, quote, respecting the game, we, we envision that as something where whether or not you've hit the game-winning home run or if you've made the, the game-ending error, you kind of handle it with professionalism and you don't really show your emotions. And down there, it's quite the opposite. Their way of respecting the game is to enjoy every one of the 27 outs of the game and celebrate it and make sure that the fans go there and see something special and, and have fun. So I would be reluctant to say that we should misconstrue Elvis's fun-loving nature as that he doesn't take the game seriously. I think for any of the, the members of the media or, or the fans or the, the players who got a chance to see Elvis post-game, uh, game five, I think you know how seriously he takes the game. And I just look at it as over 162, it, it's so vital to have guys in your clubhouse who play the game with that level of enthusiasm and energy because otherwise it's such a grind. And I personally feel when we've had our deep runs in 2010, 11, and now in 2015, it's been on the shoulders of guys like Elvis and Adrian and this year Rugnet Odor. I mean, they really set the tone for playing the game with such a high level of energy uh, that I think translates to the rest of the club. And it really turns out to be a huge competitive advantage for us in the dog days of August, September, and October. And I think from a media perspective, one thing that can't be overlooked is even after Game 5, <clears throat> Elvis came to his locker. You know, nobody cares if you talk to the media or not, but when you sit, when you put your message out there, and as Elvis did, took full accountability, no excuses, guys were feeding him excuses, he didn't take any, there's a level of accountability there. And for some people, I think they're always going to see the guy that you mentioned, Kevin, that's that's throwing Gatorade on guys. I, we in the media also get to see that guy who stands up at his locker and answers all the questions, and and never takes it personally, except when, except to say, okay, I need to get better. Thanks for <clears throat> thanks for boxing me out, Evan. Um, I I just wanted to ask that. So you have no problem with Joey Bats's uh, uh, bat twirling after the home run? You know. <laughs> It was uh, I, to say I have no problem. I think would be a, a gross understatement. I, I, you know, it was a such an emotional series, and that game five was about as emotionally charged an environment as I personally have ever been in watching a game of baseball. I mean, it was it was emotional. It was hostile. Uh, we literally were watching the game. I think no different than a lot of fans in the stadium. There were. Two of us were looking backwards and two of us were looking forward to make sure we didn't get hit in the back of the head with something or hit in, hit in the, the front of the head with a foul ball. And so it was, it was exceptionally mo- emotionally charged. And what he did there for the franchise of the Toronto Blue Jays, who hadn't really been in the playoffs in such a long period of time, had to have been just euphoric for him. And how he expressed that, uh, it's hard to fault him. But at the same time, from the Texas Rangers' perspective and looking through it, and that lens we're highly competitive and it's hard not to look at that and feel like we're getting shown up a little bit. 
and that's where you know it's 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 a little bit of a tough pill to swallow for the Texas Rangers. Let me ask you this about too about that kind of because because uh, I was there at that game. Unfortunately, I was in the press box, so we were sheltered. We we didn't have anything coming at us. I threw some stuff on Kevin just so he feel the experience. <laughs> yeah. you, shel- right. you were sheltered from the storm. Yes, we were. Uh, I, I have never seen anything like that in a game. Stuff coming down in, into the stands. Uh, you know, beer cans coming down, and of course now now they have outlawed that for the. They're not selling any beer cans up in the upper deck in Toronto for this ALCS. Um, if, if that had happened at the ballpark, what would have been your response? You know, I, I just, I, it, it's embarrassing. You know, it's embarrassing. And I would like to think that, you know, between uh, our ownership group, our, our business leaders, JD, I, I would hope that we would have gotten an opportunity to probably get on the microphone and try to talk our fans down from that level of expression because that's it's totally unacceptable. I think we, we all saw the – I don't know if the, the child in the front row actually got hit or the mother just got so scared of the situation, tried to rush their child out. But, you know, the, there are a lot of casualties, potential casualties in that situation, and not the least of whom were the players on the field and the umpires. And, you know, they're doing their best to try to get those calls right, and I think it's our job as, you know, kind of stewards of the franchise to make sure that our fans – conduct themselves in a professional way and and that really got out of control got out of control very quickly and it seemed as if they had a real difficult time reining it back in sad before we let you go last question here but i i think one thing that that went a little bit overlooked over the course of the season i think has an impact going forward is how smoothly this front office seemed to work this year how a how easily able you guys were to adjust the situations what is as you go forward in this offseason how do you feel like you're a little bit more nimble or streamlined or, or what would be the right way to to describe the environment in the front office right now jd has us drink 16 ounces of kool-aid every morning <laughs> that he prepares specially for us you, you know i think it, it all starts with the dynamic between owner, general manager, and manager. And I think at this stage in our franchise's development, that relationship could not be better. Uh, our ownership group, to John Daniels, to, to Jeff Bannister, is is really very cohesive, a very transparent, very open communication. And I think that's really at the heart and the foundation of every successful franchise in, in professional sports. But we've worked together for, for quite some time now. And as a result, we have some terrific chemistry in our, in our front office group. But I think you can't underestimate the infusion of new voices last year that we had join our group and, you know, headlined by Jeff Bannister. But we also added a number of other coaches to the coaching staff. Uh, we've elevated some of our professional scouts to, to the decision-making table. And so as a result, we've kind of inter, intermixed that chemistry with a lot of new voices. So I think as a front office group, we really were challenged in a different way this year because we had so many different opinions coming to the table. And I think what you saw as the season progressed is we started getting, gaining some traction and some chemistry with the new group such that now we really are clicking on a lot of cylinders. And I think we head into this off season feeling extremely comfortable with one another, but also comfortable that we're learning from one another and that we're going to get pushed by the group to tr- really excel. I mean, what we accomplished in 2015, I think, was was terrific, but I think we're looking to 2016 and beyond as a chance to really open this window again that our, our fans got to enjoy starting in 2010, unfortunately closed a little bit in 14, but our hope and goal is that we're opening another window where we can enjoy a successful run for years to come. 
All right, we forgot to ask you about Mike Maddox's status, but when you mentioned the pitching, when you mentioned the coaching staff, I uh, thought we'd better bring that up. His contract expires at the end of this month. Where do you guys stand with Mike right now? So our, our, our coaches' contracts, one of the nuances of, of working in baseball is that our contracts typically run November 1st through October 31st to coincide, coincide a little bit more with the season rather than the, the calendar year. So he's actually not the only co- coach who is in that similar position. Our immediate goal once the season ended was to make offers to each of those coaches. We have done so, uh, Mike included. It's something he's considering uh, and we're hoping to hear back from him soon because we're hoping to keep the rest of our staff intact moving into 2016. All right, Deb, we really appreciate the time. Uh, we ran well over with you, but as always, you enlightened us. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate being on. All right, uh, thanks again. Okay. I, I just wanted to ask him how he puts up with you all season long. That's the only question. What, I'm, still, I'm still live. Oh, oh. Well, <laughs> eh, eh, the ha, tape ha, running. Five words or less. <laughs> Uh, Let the man go, Barry. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank Bye. you, Thad. Bye. So what do you guys think about how he puts up with me all season? I, I think he does extremely well to do that. Now, you know, here's the thing about that to remember is that he is, you know. The thing about that? Is pretty soon he's going to end up being the general manager of this club. Uh, I think he should end up being the general manager of this club at some point because I, I – I, and this is no slight on John Daniels. John Daniels has done a great job in, in, in 10 years – I think that the uh, at some point you've got a line of succession to set up and you've got somebody here who works really well, almost in a partnership with John Daniels. You can kind of set up a situation like the Chicago Cubs have now with Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer uh, and give Thad a little bit more autonomy to run the club. Otherwise, I do think at some point in time they're going to risk losing this guy who really – could have lost him several times. I, I think is a great listener and a great understander of of interpersonal dynamics, and I think he, he puts up with you. He must be. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I and I put up with you. <laughs> Barely. So, now you're getting angry at me. I can tell. I'm angry. We should. No, we, we should. We should. All right. So here's the thing. Before we go, what are you? Uh, I don't know why we're still stuck on this, but. Everybody has to have a last word on on bat flip gate. What is your take? Oh, I, I, you know, here's the funny thing about that. You know, the lovely wife Debbie, uh, not a huge sports fan, but she she follows it a little bit, and she was really interested in the playoffs, and she's watching the game, and she said to me afterward after that was over, and, and she never comments on anything about players, and she said, "Oh, that that Bautista guy when he threw his bat like that, the way they were acting was I was like I was watching a football game instead of a baseball game." And I think it really says something when somebody who's such an extremely casual fan had that type of reaction. And, it, and, it, and you know, I, I, and I know that we, we watch it in other sports and it's okay. And I, I realize I'm a traditionalist, but it's, it's too much. You know, the, 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 the Blue Jays to me have become a team that is that are, that are very hard to watch. I, I have zero problem with the bat flip portion of that. I think the Rangers had very little issue with the bat flip portion of it. I've watched other bat flips from postseasons of the past, and there were. I've watched other bat flips this year. And what players showed in that moment was exuberance of joy. What Bautista did was stare down Sam Dyson as if to say, I just kicked your ass. And that may have been the, that may have been the situation. But show some exuberance for the moment. Show, show some happiness for what you've done for your team. That, I think, is where the Rangers got upset. And what Sam did 
was he walked to Bautista when he, when he walked in Carnacion after Bautista crossed the plate and simply said, don't ever do that again. And I, I thought I thought Dyson handled it correctly. Then the Blue Jays got upset because the Blue Jays don't like being told, don't you guys act in, in a bad way. Well, the, the problem with it all is that there's a way that, that most of these baseball players were raised. And now, and now we I – mean, and you're right. We have seen this stuff before. I mean, I go back to Jeffrey Leonard going around with one flap up, one flap down on a home run. You know, and some of that stuff's funny and fun, you know, all that kind of thing. But, you know – Encarnacion goes with the parrot or, or on, on his on Right. His the, the problem is is that this is a sport where people are also throwing baseballs toward you, you know, and and things can really get out of hand. It's not even in football when you you can hit a guy, but you know they're just so so, so hard you can hit him. When you're throwing a baseball at 95, 98 miles an hour, and and you might be mad at a guy because of something he did, then, then we got real problems. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's good to have a, at least a little bit of decorum in baseball. Barry, speaking of decorum, which you have none, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up nicely. Thank you, thank the listeners for listening. Thank Thad for being with us. And let's say goodbye. Well, wait a minute. You have another cookie to eat or something? I, I Why have... don't you crumble some more cookie crumbs into the microphone? Wow. <laughs> Next time I'll bring enough cookies for you, too. Okay. On that, on, yeah, on we, that will, they, will that be acceptable, That'll then? That'll be acceptable. I, I noticed you took, my, you took my Oreos, and you're going to take them home with you. It's like the teacher in the school takes the candy from the kid, brings it home to her, brings it home to her own kids. Barry, all these years of marriage, I think. Are, congratulations, by the way. On what is it? Thirty-one years. Uh, Thirty-one years of what? Oh, I'm, it's working at the morning news. I, well, no, I, I joined the morning news thirty-four years ago, Monday, yesterday. Uh, he left the morning news for three years. For three years okay. to go to the Fort Worth Star Telegram. So we dis. That is, but it's that still. Is, I you see the picture he posted on Facebook. It was like a bar mitzvah picture. Oh, all right. <laughs> goodbye. Let's say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>